I'm Dr. Lara Devgan. I'm a plastic surgeon in New York City, the CEO of Scientific Beauty, and of course, a major beauty enthusiast. You are listening to Beauty Bosses, where we chat with fellow industry leaders who are shaping beauty, fashion, wellness, and all things pretty. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 14 of Beauty Bosses with the amazing and talented Jasmine Loeb. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. So Jasmine is a really amazing guest, and I'm so excited to talk to you today because you are a columnist for the New York Observer, and this is kind of my favorite thing about your job, but you actually took over for the Candace Bushnell column that she made famous with Sex of the City, yes. um, and so now we have the J-Spot. So here's our new Candace Bushnell and our new <laughs> Sex of the City writer, um, and we're going to talk all about her column, her writing career, um, and everything in between. Amazing. I'm so excited. Okay, great. Well, you know, many people already know you and follow your column and love your writing and all of that stuff, but a lot of people don't know the whole backstory. So you grew up in New York City. Mm-hmm. You're the child of two very famous artists. Mm-hmm. Um, you have had an illustrious career wearing many different hats as a figure skater, um, an artist, an actress, and more recently a writer. So you've kind of done a bunch of different things. And now you are writing your column and really focusing on developing that aspect of your career. Yes. Yeah. And I'm very excited that um, I just recently sold the rights um, of my my column to Universal. So hopefully um, it will be a TV series. Um, that's that's the goal. You know, we still there's still it's always a process, but it's it's very exciting. And um, I was just out in LA and meeting with people, and so it was like full circle because I lived in LA for six years. So it's very it's really cool. That's very cool. Okay, so let's rewind, and I want you to talk me through. Um, your column and why don't you tell all our listeners a little bit about what the J-Spot is. Yeah, Um, well I was an actress in Hollywood for six years. Um, I moved out there, I got a pilot, Um, but things, you know, looked like everything was like beginner's luck and then the writer's strike happened and uh, my agent dropped me, got a new agent, it was just like a lot of ups and downs and it was a real struggle and I really experienced um, you know, the sort of, sort of the, the male patriarchal experience that so recently has been brought up during the Me Too movement. Um, and we'll talk about that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's definitely important for us to cover. Yeah. So, um, I started writing about it and, uh, that was very cathartic. Um, but also very scary because at the time, you know, like I wasn't, I wasn't, I had never published before and I was used to being an actress, you know, speaking other people's words, but not my own. And to kind of connect with that part of myself was very empowering. And the last year I was in LA, I um, started publishing a column for New York natives. A, A girlfriend of mine read one of my columns that I had just written for myself. I had to get it out of me. And she gave me a column in New York Natives. Um, it was called Star 
fucked. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on. <laughs> I think it's fine. We've been told on authority that there's no bleeping on podcast. Okay, so hopefully, all right. Hopefully yeah. we won't get an explicit yeah. warning for this. Well, you can't it was spelled with a, like a star, a, a star for the U. <laughs> okay. So, um, but yeah, so it was, it was. And so what was that column about? That column was about my dating life. It was about producers that I had run into who, you know, would literally try and proposition me for parts. It was just sort of this look at Hollywood that I, I think it felt like people weren't talking about, or at least New Yorkers and people back home weren't talking about. You know, I had gone to Vassar, which is a very feminist school, and to kind of go out there, it felt like I was in the wild, wild west, and, and I certainly was. And so writing about it was very empowering and exciting. And from there, after publishing about six columns, um, the, the New York Observer, which is now called The Observer, heard about it, and the editor-in-chief um, you know, asked me to pitch him some ideas, and I did, and um, he offered me the column. And then, of course, we had to come up with the name for the column, right? And uh, I love which is the hard name. to follow. It's hard to name anything. It's hard it's to name a child, a column. I know, and since my name is Jasmine, and I'm the spot of Jasmine, <laughs> <laughs> and it's a play on obviously G-Spot, um, so it, it seemed like a really uh, a fun title. Yeah, you know? it's a really good name. I think that's really aptly named. Thank you. Um, so taking over this column that was so famously made a thing by Candace Bushnell is sort of a big deal and kind of a lot of pressure. How does it feel or how did it feel at the time and how does it feel now to have inherited um, this kind of very important place in New York zeitgeist that, yeah. you know, all of us of this generation, I think maybe anyone between 20 and 50 has some kind of emotional relationship to sex in the city. Yes. So how does it feel to be writing that column? Yeah, I think that if I started, if I thought about um, you know, having it be another Sex in the City, I would have just like shut down and wouldn't have written at all. Like I really had to get that out of my mind and make it my own. And you know, I had a very unique experience. Like, you know, my life wasn't exactly Sex in the City, even though I was writing about my dating life. I, I moved back from LA and, and moved in with my parents. <laughs> so not very Carrie Bradshaw. Right. You. <laughs> not very Carrie Bradshaw, but. I would, you know, a childhood friend of mine is a fashion designer, so, you know, he would dress me up in his gowns, and, you know, so I'd go out to some galas, and then it was like, you know, Cinderella, once the clock truck, you know, struck 12, I'd come back home and go into my parents' bed and, you know, return the dresses, and so, you know, it, it, it still was very glamorous, but there was also, like, a real dose of reality, like, it's not easy to pay rent in New York City, so I was very lucky to be able to focus on my writing career while, you know, living at home. But that also caused some interesting dynamics, which, um, you know, I, I explore in my column, and I'm hoping that the, the TV series, The J-Spot, will also be exploring. Okay, amazing. Tell us a little bit about some things that you write about in the column. Like, for, for those of our listeners who've never read it, um, first of all, where have you been? You should read it. Second of all, um, tell us tell us some examples of topics that that, it, that you've written about. Um, yeah, uh, I would say that um, one topic was I started sort of getting more into exploring feminism and what it meant to like 
you know, post a selfie on Instagram in a bathing suit and does, did that mean that I was a bad feminist? And can you be, you know, if one, can you be a feminist and wear lingerie? And of course you can, but it's sort of exploring, you know, what, what many people think of feminism and what actually feminism is about, which is equal rights for men and women and respect for women. But, you know, we have these ideas about it. Um, and so, you know, I would explore topics like that or, you know, dating the bad boy and who treats you terribly and yet you come back and want more without, and at a certain point you realize, you wake up and you say, no, I, I don't want that anymore. That has to do with some sort of old rejection pattern and I actually want to value myself and, you know, I want a loving relationship. So I explore all these different topics. I also explore, you know, sugar daddies. Um, uh, I, in, when I was in LA, I was propositioned 20 grand a month um, by what? my boss. By my boss. <laughs> oh my and God. I think I was making $2,000 a month as his personal assistant. And he sat me down one day and said, um, I will offer you $20,000 a month if you have sex with me. And so, and he said it explicitly, explicitly, just like, that. like a business deal, like sign and, here, right? And I was horrified, and I went home and I cried. But it's very hard. It was very hard to get a job that I could audition while simultaneously, you know, work. And and so it was, I had to figure something else out as soon as possible. But I couldn't just leave the next day, or it was very hard to. And um, and you know, it's funny. At the time, I didn't even think of that as sexual harassment. Like, I saw that as just what it means to be a woman. And I think that, once again, coming back to this Me Too, yeah. we're starting to realize that that is not okay, you know, for your boss to put you in that situation. No. And that is sexual harassment. So, um, yeah. And then another um, uh, article that I, I recently wrote is I... God, I feel like listing my series of traumas, <laughs> but um, I actually came out against Harvey Weinstein, um, who assaulted me, um, and so when I was an actress um, in Cannes, I was in Cannes um, in France, and um, that was very upsetting and very confusing, um, and I was very reluctant to come out against him, but all of these brave women were coming out, and and I had already written about him in 2013 for The Observer, and... But at that time, it but was I didn't name him. not named. I, I didn't right. name him, and I felt like it was important to talk about men like him, because it isn't just Harvey Weinstein. There are many men out there like him that abuse their power, so I, I felt like I needed to write about that, his character, and that type of man. Um, but as soon as everyone started naming him, I just realized that like, it, I was wrestling with it every single day. And um, I, I had to just, had to get it out. I, and I didn't realize that it was still such a big wound. Um, yeah. And that column really made the rounds. It must have been one of your most frequently read columns, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Then I did Access Hollywood with um, Natalie Morales and... That, it was just really overwhelming because no little girl ever says, one day I want to go on TV so I can talk about my sexual assault. You know, it's, right. it's not something that you dream of doing. So let's pause for a second. And since we're kind of talking about these aspects of the Me Too movement and, you know, feminism and what it means to make workplaces and really just society safe for women, mm. um, can you speak a little bit about your 
experiences, like your specific experiences um, in the entertainment industry as they pertain to Me Too? Like, what, what, did, what did all of this mean for you in a practical sense? Well, I also wrote in that same article about another director who um, uh, offered me a part and um, had me meet him um, to talk about the, the role, and this was only a couple years ago. And I thought, okay, I already dealt with the Harvey Weinstein thing. Like, I'm, I'm savvy now. I'm in my 30s. Like, this, this guy, like, he had, like, terrible knees. Like, he's not going to do anything. And we met in a hotel room, but with lots of people because he was shooting a, a, a series with um, Brett Ratner. And I, um, you know, so I felt, I, felt, I felt totally safe. And then he, he could barely walk. Um, and, uh, and this is James Toback for a second. I blanked out on his name probably fortunately, like that's what I, you know, sometimes trauma does. But, um, anyway, he, we talked about the role and it was very professional. And then he asked me to masturbate in front of him, um, in character. And I said, I really didn't feel comfortable with it. And he just got inside my head and finally I, I said no. And he said, if you ever tell anyone about this, I will track you down and I will slit your throat. What? Yeah. So, um, so I mean, that's, that was, um, and of course, I only told my mother mm -hmm. and like a few people, um, I was traumatized, but like, you know, you, you compartmentalize that and it's just like another experience that you chalk up to like being a woman, being an actress, being like, another creepy man. Wow, that one was really creepy. Okay, just check, put that in my box and don't think about that again. But the thing is, is these things come back and you can't just put them in a box. And that I think is what's so empower powerful about what's happening right now is, is that they are coming up and we're all being forced or women are being, are really starting to reintegrate their past experiences because I'm sure almost every woman I mean, I can't say this for, speak for everyone, but it has had some strange experience, whether it's even just walking down the street and feeling a little bit, um, and, uh, so, and then just other situations where, you know, I would go to auditions and I'd be, you know, everyone, all the women would be like in push-up bras and you start to realize that it's really not about your talent. It's about the way you look. And, um, you know, it's, it's very hard and, and, and I think it's starting to change, but, um, this, then, and this kind of goes back to our society too. I mean, Hollywood in some level is like representative. Yeah, is it a mirror or is it creating all of this or both? I think, yeah. I think that this is in our society. I think, I mean, that's, that's sort of what's the chicken or, you know, mm -hmm. the egg. Like, I don't know. I mean, for you as a plastic surgeon, I mean, how does, like, this sort of, how do you feel about the, you know, how beauty and in this context um, and, and pressures and, you know, on one hand, it, it, beauty can almost be dangerous. It can almost feel like you're being threatened if, if you know, you can feel like, oh, if I look a certain way, oh, people are going to, like, say something to me or this or that. But yet, it's your choice. It's your choice to, to walk into a room. It's not for men. It's, it's for you to feel good about yourself. 
So I, I wonder how that, yeah. how you feel about that as a plastic no, it's surgeon. So interesting. Sorry, that was like a really I was trying, <laughs> trying to get to somewhere and I was kind of winding I got, around. I feel I, like you got there. You totally finally, got there. like I had to. It was like, good. It was good. Um, you know, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I think it's been interesting for me to reflect on this topic as a woman and a plastic surgeon because, um, and also as a mother to a little girl, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you want to feel like you're living in a society that accepts you for exactly who you are. But at the same time, there's kind of this fundamental thread of human existence where we all want to put our best foot forward into the world, whether that means, um, you know, styling our hair a certain way, wearing lipstick, wearing flats versus high heels, working on our abs, you know, covering a bald spot or, you know, everybody has a little thing that they do, um, to make themselves feel Mm. a little bit more confident. And I think that the most powerful thing about what I do and my favorite thing about what I do is helping to empower men and women to feel good in their own skin. And it's, I've learned that it's very hard to walk in someone else's shoes and you can look at someone and say like, you're perfectly attractive, you need nothing done. But if you are that person and something is always making you self-conscious and it can be addressed in a safe and medically responsible manner, then I really think that it's a truer form of feminism to live and let live and like kind of leave people alone. If somebody wants to wear, you know, a dark black gothic lipstick because they like it and it makes them feel a certain way and it makes them present the way, you know, that's most in accordance with their self-identity, then who am I or who are you or who's anybody to tell them not to do that? And similarly, if you're held back by, you know, a bump on your nose or if you feel that you're, mm. you know, you miss your post, you're, you miss your pre-baby body or right. you yeah. have, like, you can't stand the fact that you have a little bit of right. fat accumulation in a place where you didn't used to have it. You know, that's a very personal, private decision. And I think that while we don't want to raise a generation of zombies that seeks plastic surgery, um, at the same time, with discretion and judgment, yeah, yeah, there's a way to balance. There's a way to like really um, balance that. So yeah, yeah, I mean, sometimes you see that like on the Upper East Side, those ladies that look like Catwoman or something like that, right. and then that's when sometimes I get a little like, oh, you you're so beautiful. Why would you do that? But once again, that's their decision. But I'm sure you also, I think you've mentioned to me before that if you feel that it starts to become obsessive or if it's the person is, it's coming not from, you know, if there's something that is is more of a psychological issue that you sort of have your boundaries and you'll say, listen, like maybe you should look at it from this angle or get treatment for something like this. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of a little professional challenge for me, but there's certainly a judgment issue there. Right, and I think that kind of comes back to like the column where, you know, talking about like Instagram or like, you know, posting a picture in a bikini, you know, are you celebrating your body or are you sort of objectifying yourself? And these two like questions that I think people ask, but ultimately it is a personal decision. And if you're doing it for likes, maybe that's not as healthy, but if you're doing it because you're celebrating who you are and you feel really fantastic, good on you. you right. Know what I mean? Exactly. Like to your point earlier, the topic of your column, like can can a woman 
who's a feminist and a woman of substance and an intelligent person wear lingerie? Like, sure, why not? Of course. Yeah. Right. Or she doesn't and where to. would this even come from? You know, but yeah. I think it comes from the seventies and this idea exactly. of burning bras and wanting to be this idea of oh, feminism means wanting to be like men. No, that's not what feminism is about anymore. Yeah. If it ever even was. I mean, yeah, so, so okay, so back to Me yeah. Too for one more second. <laughs> yeah. What I want to really understand about the Me Too movement is some of the most egregious examples of stories that I've heard, including the ones that you mentioned today about, you know, physical assault, being directly propositioned for sexual intercourse, being threatened with violence or throat slitting. I mean, just the most absurd things that I have ever heard. Yeah. Um, For some reason, a lot of these stories seem to flow from the entertainment industry. And I'll just pause by saying that I realize that these stories are present in every industry. They're even present in medicine and, you know, that even doctors go through stuff like this in, in a different way. But what is it about Hollywood and what is it about the entertainment industry that makes these cases of injustice and sexual harassment and assault and inappropriate conduct just go nuclear and become the most egregious things in the world? Well, I think that Hollywood also is under such a microscope. I mean, everyone looks to Hollywood. It's like our roy is like you know England's royalty. Um, but that being said, Silicon Valley just had a huge like last year. There was tons of cases of sexual harassment, and Wall Street is rampant. But the problem is, is there aren't as many women on Wall Street, and it's much more secretive. So I think we're going to start seeing a lot more cases coming out. Um, but you know, when in the entertainment business. It's very, very public. So it really is, on that level, a very, it, it's great for being a public forum. And everything's on social media, so it really sort of spreads and we can really start to see. So I think this is just the beginning. What do you think caused the tipping point where, you know, this stuff has been going on for ages? It's been going on in much less glamorous industries and it's been happening to, you know, women who. Are women and men actually who are in much less advantaged positions. What happened in the past year that made this all culminate? I mean, I really think that um, the election of Donald Trump um, was a big part of that. Um, that you know, when he said statements like "grab him up like by the pussy," and you know, I think that women got so fed up at a certain point. That it was sort of like a tidal wave and they just got and you know with women's rights um you know abortion rights being sort of attacked it it, it really is a terrifying feel with the movie handmaid's tale coming out it rang so true that this could potentially happen maybe not to that extreme but like the fear was there i think that it just was a tidal wave and i think that it's been ready to happen for a long time and it's been happening for thousands of years and I think it just was the perfect storm and it just blew up and it had so much momentum because so much truth was finally coming out mm-hmm. and I think that it was just like it was just this bursting and this cry and this sort of empowerment and um, so I think it was like just many different things lining up Right. So what, what's changed? Is anything different now? That's a really good point. Um, I think that, I think there is more of awareness now. I think that men are on better behavior, hopefully, um, and maybe are 
more accountable. Um, I heard from a friend in Europe that actually it's gone backwards, that there's a backlash against it and that people are almost like pressing back. So I think that it's really important that we keep talking about this and keep pushing forwards because we don't want it to go back. Um, but I think a lot more change needs to happen. And I think just continuing the stories and the next phases, not just, you know, now talking about times up and what we can actually do, mm -hmm. you know, to make those changes, like how we can raise money, how we can help people that don't have the privilege that you or I have, you know, and really, you know, come forward and, and find different ways of helping and shifting. Right. Because for so long, we've just looked the other way. Like the term, the casting couch is like, you know, this dirty word that everybody kind of knows what that means and reading right. between the lines. But boys will be boys. Why we're and redefining, you know, right. locker room talk. We're redefining these narratives that were just taken for granted. And we were, we're putting like very user-friendly euphemisms on them. Right. Almost like it's funny. Like, yeah, you know, like, like, you know, casting couch. Well, you know, you you learned your lesson. Ha ha ha. Like, right. that's what it means to be an actress. And I think now we're saying no, 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 no. We deserve respect, you know, and we deserve to be treated fairly. Yeah. So, you know, so that, and that's been in the last couple columns, that's actually been a big part of my, my, you know, stories. Like, you know, I've written a lot about dating and sex and relationships but this is so intertwined with sex and relationships, these male-female dynamics, that I feel like it is really important to talk about because you can't leave that out of, you know, yeah. dating and sex because it kind of surrounds it. Totally. You know, with like the story Cat Person, you know, in The New Yorker, it was all about yeah. that gray area. And, I, and or Aziz Ansari, that date gone wrong, like, that gray area where she felt violated, you know, and she has a right to, to voice that. But we also have to look at, you know, what led up to that. And, you know, so it's, it's very interesting. And how do we time. change that? And how do how we do raise we the right. next generation? And the next generation of, of little young boys. boys. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I've thought so. about that a lot as well for my children. Yeah. So... We have, so, we have some I know, we have, so we have so writing. much to talk keep about. Keep writing. I know, I need to go on this whole Me Too tangent. No, I like it. Okay, so let's talk a little yeah. bit more about your column. Okay. Um, I am very curious what it's been like to, um, to be a single woman in New York while writing a really prominent dating dating and sex column and you know how that has impacted your love life and dating life and relationships and yeah you know when you are meeting somebody or entering into something or in some kind of intermediate stage what do people think are they yeah. are they on their best behavior or are they scared I think there are maybe on their best behavior in the beginning <laughs> until they're not <laughs> and then I've written about them um, I think there's a little bit of fear, fear with the pen, you know, um, like the but, Taylor Swift effect. Yeah. Right. I, and I relate to that, you know, because I've definitely, um, J spotted some men. Um, but I think that, you know, I also think that I was sort of in some bad patterns, which I explored and at a certain point this summer I really made a decision that I wanted 
to be, to really be loved and valued and accepted for me and not, um, I don't know, I was like in this weird sort of push-pull, like, you know, dating the bad boy guy who rejects me and somehow feeling like that longing would excite me in some way. And it just lost its its excitement for me this summer. I, I don't know. I did a lot of sort of soul searching and I wrote about it and I, um, and I actually met someone um, and I'm in a very loving relationship right now. So I'm very, oh, good. very happy. Um, so it'll be interesting too how the column changes as I'm in this um, relationship. And, um, but I think that, I think that people will want to know hopefully that there is love. Like when you work on yourself and you make a decision to be healthy um, maybe it doesn't happen right away and maybe you stumble a bunch, but, um, there are, there are soulmates out there. I know that sounds cheesy, but no, I like it. I, I feel like mine. That's kind of the, <laughs> that's sort of where we want all this to be going, right? We all want meaning. Right. Exactly. You know, so it was like four and a half years of like lots of really unfortunate situations, but all lessons, you know, and, and it wasn't just about the men. I also wrote about, you know, my family and living at home with my parents and I kind of had to grow up all over again as an adult. And so, you know, that was part of my column. And, and so there were so many different facets of, of evolving. And I don't know, sometimes things just line up and they, they kind of click and, and it can take years and years and years and years, you know? Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're like, hey, I'm happy. You know, you can always find things to be a little <laughs> bit unhappy about. I never like to say I'm, I'm happy because then I get superstitious. Don't jinx it. Well, I, I get know. superstitious <laughs> and then I think it's all going to be terrible. So I don't, I don't, I, you know, which is also interesting. Happiness is just wanting what you have. I feel right. like that's kind of the thing. I think happiness is gratitude. And just, and I think that you can find happiness in any circumstance, really. Like, I mean almost any, you know, um, you can find gratitude. You can be grateful for something, you yeah. know, um, even in the most dire of times when I was like in LA and like, I would look at my bank account and one time uh, the bank teller looked at me and said, living on the edge, aren't we? <laughs> I was like, you know, it's bad when your bank teller is uh, telling you you're living on the edge. I'm like, I don't need to hear that from my bank teller. But like, you know, so it's nice when like, you know, but even that, I had so much to be grateful for. You yeah. know, I lived in LA, it was beautiful, I had great friends, and I was living on the edge. There you <laughs> go. So how has being in a nice relationship changed your column? Um, well, I now that's the next step, is exploring okay. that. I think that, you know, I have to figure out um, if I'm gonna give it a little space for my own personal, you know, just to, to, to have that for myself for a little bit and just sort of hint at it, I might not write quite a, right away about the details of my relationship. I might keep that for myself for a bit, um, and but I think that I can also convey aspects of lessons that I've learned along the way yeah. without kind of fully, you know, telling everything. You know, um, I think I'm finding that balance because I think for a while I did just tell everything, and you know, things change, and you want to find. You want to find that rhythm that feels both safe for you personally, but also is gratifying for you as an artist and also for readers. Um, so 
this is also a journey for me too, so I don't know, but um, I'm really excited. Great. Well, what are your professional goals for the J-Spot and your overall career trajectory? Yeah, well, I'm working on a memoir right now, so um, I'm really excited about telling this story, the behind the scenes of the J-Spot, you know, kind of how this all transpired, and um, I'm excited for the TV show. Um, that would be really awesome if you yeah. know that the J-Spot was, you know... This is going to be the next generation Sex and yeah. the City, right? Yeah, and um, I, you know, um, for the column, like, yeah, I want to explore... Um, I think for a long time I explored disconnect and longing and um, my pain, and that, which led to a lot of drama and excitement at times, but I think now I also am very interested in connection and actual love and what it means to be in a relationship and um, that's a whole other area to explore um, versus just being single and kind of always in that place of longing but what about when you are in a relationship where you have that love you know um, so I think that'll be really interesting to explore and um, I have some YouTube ideas in the works um, that I'm excited about and um, yeah, so for now, that's kind of keeping me occupied. All good things. <laughs> well, I'm so happy to have had you on my podcast, and I want to gift you a product from Scientific Beauty as oh, wow. my little form of saying thank you. Oh, thank um, you so much. I would love that. Welcome. My skin will be very happy. Yes, <laughs> and we were kind of talking about... The, yes, Sarah. The yeah. Sarah, our mutual <laughs> friend, had mentioned that like she had this uh, tried this moisturizer that literally changed her life, and that people come up to her and it's like, are, and they're like, oh my god, what, what did you do? And so I was like, I want that. <laughs> we'll get you some of that. That's the platinum triple glow. That's like a really nice retinoid and brightener. And does it like? you know make your skin irritated at all or is it, it all retinoids do cause a little bit of dryness so there's okay. a bit of an acclimation period for a couple of weeks so you might have a little bit of so maybe put it on like every other day or you something you can start with every other day you use it at night we'll kind of take it offline to go through the specific instructions right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep we'll keep your consult off the podcast because um, you know my skin but, is kind of oily combination skin so you know um but i think you'll really like it oh i'm really excited and then i want to just close by you know this is beauty bosses so we want to just close by asking you to talk a little bit about what beauty means to you and what being a boss means to you wow cool i think beauty you know means I really, I know it's as, as cheesy as it sounds, I think it's, it's, it's confidence and, and feeling really good on the inside because I could get my hair done and look, you know, like have a great outfit, blah, 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 and maybe look beautiful from the outside. But if I'm feeling depressed or scared on the inside, I will walk down the street and I'll want to hide. And if I'm feeling just in the zone, in my bliss, in my creativity, that's when I feel the most beautiful. That's when I'm laughing. That's when I feel the most sensual and beautiful. So for me, beauty really is sort of an experience. Um, and being a boss, you know, I think sometimes I struggle with that because it's like, you know, I don't know, bosses scare me a little bit. <laughs> like the idea of boss, you yeah. know, like boss. Yeah. When you are your own boss, I guess that means to me, 
being a leader. And being a leader is stepping into, into who you're meant to be and following your dreams and having a voice and despite your fear, still standing up and talking and still standing up and speaking your truth. And I think that's what it means to be a boss. So I hope to be a boss more and more each day. I like it. Well, thank you so much. And thank you. Uh, we can't wait to see what's in store for you next. <laughs> thank you.